Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who just five years into my legal career found myself teetering on the edge of burnout. So that I didn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided it was time to redefine success from the inside out. Fast forward a few years and it worked. I had a thriving legal career balanced with a fulfilling life. What I learned is that you can achieve the success you want without sacrificing yourself in the process. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Life in Law Podcast. This is your host, Heather Mulder. And today we have a first in that we are inviting back a prior guest from last season. This is the first time we've ever invited somebody back. And I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today. So quick introduction. I have brought back Elise Bowie. She is a passionate, creative, problem-solving family law attorney who creates solutions, not obstacles. After evacuating her hometown of New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina and surviving a divorce, Elise landed in Seattle and founded her law firm to help families thrive through change. Her practice involves all aspects of family law and estate planning, guided by a collaborative philosophy and her deep understanding of complex parenting and family issues. And I specifically brought her on because the issue of starting your own law practice has been coming up over and over again with some of my current clients. And I realize there's a lot of reticence to do it because us lawyers tend to think, oh, I'm not a business person. I can't, which is absolutely not the case, y'all. And I wanted to bring somebody else on who's done it, who's thrived with it. So welcome back, Elise. Thanks so much for having me. I love that I'm your first welcome back guest. I bet you have others now. <laughs> well, you know, I remember when we had you on before and everybody, I will, if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it as well. It's really, really informative. And we get into a lot of like leadership type lessons and the fact that you have a virtual firm, which I love, and the leadership kind of you know, struggles that you can have in a virtual farm. So I will link to it in the show notes so that everybody can go back and listen to that if you haven't. But I definitely wanted to bring you on to talk about this issue of, you know, starting your own law practice and the things you want to think about and how to overcome the mindset blocks that we attorneys seem to have, which I find interesting because we're really smart people. We figure things out for our clients that are novel and new all the time. And yet we don't have enough confidence in ourselves that we can figure out the business side. You have hit the nail on the head, though. It is 100% a mindset thing that people struggle with of, one, feeling like they have to do it in some prescribed certain way (laughs) that there's some, you know, magic bullet book out there that's going to tell them exactly what they need to do. and. I mean, the first success to starting your own law firm is embracing your authenticity and figuring out why are you starting your own law firm? Like, what is your why? What is your vision? Why do you Mm. think this is a a good idea? And I have to be honest, like starting your own law firm is not for the faint of heart. Like this is not (laughs) some like, you know, oh, you'll just, you know, throw out a few business cards, you'll call a few past clients, and all of a sudden, all will be great. 
I mean, that would be absolutely faulty to think that. I mean, it requires a lot of dedication and a lot of knowledge and a lot of willingness to fail. I think that is our biggest struggle, is the Mm -hmm. willingness to stumble and fall and fail because we're failing publicly now. Do you know what I mean? If you're starting your own law firm and you might go down a little path and then you might be like, oh, that wasn't a great path. Like, and, And then you'll back up and go down a different path. But without those failings, you won't ever succeed. Those failings are critical in your journey. And I like to think of them not as really failures. They're stumbling blocks, yep. but they're they're necessary to learn whatever lessons you need to learn so that you can take that forward and do better and then create the law firm you actually want. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, you know, speaking for myself only, I mean, I've had some royal failures, like where I have made <laughs> bad decisions or, you know, brought on people that just were not at all culturally aligned with our firm. I knew that when we brought them on, but I thought, oh, I'll be able to fix that or that won't be a problem. I mean, big mistake on my part, you know, but that's okay. Like I, you do learn from those. But I mean, the mindset shifts that are required, and I think we probably touched on them when we talked about this before in leadership, is that willingness to turn the mirror on yourself. And, you know, that's a really tough spot to be in, I think, as an owner, understanding that all the things, good, bad, and ugly, come back to you. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, especially the ugly, you know, like, And so being that person who's willing to turn that mirror and ask yourself, okay, well, what part did I play in this? And what part is my attitude or what all those questions that are necessary. But I mean, this is not about being good in business or being not. I mean, I I hate to say it. This is about personal development. Do you know what I mean? I do. How developed is your mind as a person where you can actually be a true leader and be able to acknowledge your faults, hire around your faults, hire around your weaknesses, accept your weaknesses, hire those people that are going to just absolutely compliment you. And you're going to get more and more and more into your zone of genius so that Mm. you're doing what you do best. And you're building a team of people who do everything else better than you because you probably suck at a lot. And <laughs> not, like, accept that. I think what you're basically saying is you've got to embrace your own vulnerability and accept who you are, where you really are, be open to it, be a little self critical, and understand that's totally okay because you can. Once you do that, you can make up for it in your hires, in, you know, the way you structure, all of that. But that, that comes first. And I do, I will say we all have known those people who refuse to do that, who start firms, right? What we're really talking about are the truly successful firms in that they're financially sustainable and they're places where people like to work right? They're not toxic. They're not, not to say you never hire the wrong person, 
Oh, yeah. But you have, you create the right culture so that mostly the right people are there. And when it's not the right fit, you more readily see it and can do something about it. And then you do know how to handle it, right? right. So to me, that's at least what success is. So it's not just about the money piece. Oh, gosh, no. It's very much a bigger picture of the culture of your office. But also for me, it's how am I maximizing the people on my team? Like, are they just really blossoming, even if they're blossoming and they're going elsewhere? Like the sometimes losing a team member and then having that team member say like, oh my gosh, you know, I have grown so much, you know, working here and doing this. And now I'm going to go, you know, do this other thing. I'm going to go to graduate school or I'm going to go whatever. Like that to me is such an amazing testament to mm. the team and what the team has created. And one thing that I find some attorneys just, they can barely get beyond themselves on this. When people leave, it's literally like this life altering thing. And they're, they feel like it's just horrible. And I mean, I definitely have a mindset of, I mean, there are certain people that are on your bus you know, in your firm, and they're going to help you go from A to to C or to J, those same people likely aren't going to be the people that are going from, you know, J on to P or on to Z. Like, Mm -hmm. oftentimes things do change. And I really think like, really good culture and good leadership, you're training up other leaders, and they're training up other leaders. And you're you're having those real conversations, not like, you know, oh, look, you didn't do this, but more like, oh, I see an opportunity. Here's a training you could go to. Like, here's an area that you could develop in and then run with, because that's how your team becomes really dynamic when they're being trained in the in leadership. Because, I mean, you know, that's the best bus to be on where you're there is no management of everybody because people are leaders. You're bringing mm-hmm. leaders up constantly. And so your team is run by very self-actualized leaders. Which of course means they're going to outgrow you okay. in that position at some point if you've done Absolutely. your job right. And so I think it's really important to go in understanding that yes, you're going to work hard to bring in the right people. You're going to help develop them. It's going to get to a place, and this happens. I see this happening a lot with with attorneys and non-attorneys too, entrepreneurs in other areas, where they it's like everything's just humming. It's perfect. It's wonderful, and that goes on for a little while. But then somebody throws a wrench by saying, "I'm growing out of this. I need to leave." And it is devastating to a lot of people. And I personally, it's okay to be devastating for a moment, right? Give yourself permission to mourn the loss, to be upset in the sense that they will no longer be there. But then you've got to like, let yourself get over that and and realize, okay, this is a chance for me to grow as well, to find Mm -hmm. that next person that will help take me to that next level that we want to get to. Absolutely. Well, and for me, I find when somebody leaves, it is such an amazing opportunity to one, reflect on the gain that they have had with you, because that allows you to see what you have done well, which I think as entrepreneurs and as lawyers in particular, 
we forget to look at our gains. We're mm. always looking in the gap, what yes. we're doing. We're constantly moving that goalpost. So really embracing what you have accomplished is super important. But also it allows you then to dig into your systems because if losing a person is causing you trauma, it is a system problem because that means you do not have systems in place that can handle the succession needed in your firm. And I mean, all of us have this, like, I don't think for one second, we have all our systems in place. We are constantly developing systems and working on succession planning. But I mean, the goal is that any one person, I mean, me included, should be able to just peace out on a moment's notice and the firm should go on fine because there should be standard operating procedures in place that people are following and that they can do. And you should have, you know, case management software in place Mm -hmm. that you are keeping up to speed with things so that, I mean, we call it our shared brain. We use Clio. And I mean, I should be able to pull up any one of hundreds of cases we have and literally within 10 minutes, I should be able to hop on the phone with that client and sound like I know exactly what's going on because I should know exactly what's going on. All of the information should be there. And so again, when somebody leaves, it's a real opportunity to fix things because if that person is, it's, if it's jarring to your business, it's totally different. If you're sad because they're your like BFF at work and you're going to miss, you know, chatting up with them. Obviously, you can still stay friends and do that, you know, just separately. But if it's jarring from a work standpoint, you really do have to look at the systems. And we had a, a real aha moment. I mean, I guess I had it just kind of recently, even in addressing a problem, because I don't care how great your firm is, how well oiled your machine is, there are problems like mm-hmm. people, there are just problems like I don't, life, I mean, just happens. And so instead of looking at a problem as a, oh, what did this person do wrong? We look at every problem now, where did our systems fail that allowed this to become a problem? Right. So then we're collaborating with the person who might have had the problem and really digging into the system because that is what is going to make it better in the future, you know, because most people aren't trying to cause a problem. Like most people are very much trying to do the right thing and be good at what they do. But if your system is glitchy and has problems, it's going to just, it's going to be evident in problems that are happening. And yeah, and I, that's so one, two things there. Number one, it highlights so clearly that when problems do occur, it's important to step back and look at the bigger picture and figure out, well, how did we get to this? And how okay. do we back, like, how do you go backwards from there to not just fix this problem, but ensure this doesn't happen again? Exactly. And or you catch it earlier, whatever it is, right? But then also, and I think something that a lot of attorneys don't think about is systems. Systems, we talk about systems a lot, right? What are systems? And I find a lot of times that attorneys think, well, I create the system or you don't alone create a system. (laughs) Unless you're a solo attorney who needs a couple of systems within your, like there are a couple if you're a solo lawyer, but you can create for yourself. 
But the vast majority of systems are created because other people are involved. And you need those systems. They're kind of like policies, procedures, principles, whatever you want to call them, so that everybody knows, no matter who's doing it, what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And if they've never done it before, it is this information is somewhere so they can readily figure it out if the person who usually takes care of it is not around, right? And so when you create a system, and this this is why I'm so happy you brought it up in respect of a problem, you need to get input, not just from you, 100%. but from everybody who could possibly be involved with that process because well, they need to have input on what those systems should be. And I mean, in my world, part of creating a system, one, I don't create any systems because they would all be convoluted and they would be horrible. <laughs> I'm not a systems person at all. And I mean, ideally, your very first hire is going to be creating system after system after system because every single thing you ask your first hire to do, the second thing needs to be write it all down. What What's you the just system did. for this? <laughs> what did you just do? And then that system must be tested by somebody who's got about an eighth grade education or somebody like me who's inept, who then could pretend like I have an eighth grade education. And then if I can follow the system of like, you know, how to post a blog on my website, then it's pretty good because right. I don't know anything about the back end of my website and posting a blog. But if I can follow that standard operating procedure, I mean, and in our office, we try to do them both, you know, written standard operating procedures. And then we also embed a lot of like Loom videos and things so mm-hmm. that people who learn differently, you know, some people are more like they read, other people kind of need more auditory right. learning. Some people need to get in and do it, you know, and so really addressing that. And, and I mean, any thought, it cracks me up when people be like, I wrote all my systems and I'm like, yeah, till tomorrow right. and a problem occurs or, you know, you try it and you realize, whoopsie, that's not how we do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, developing systems and working on system is a constant. I mean, I expect to do it until the yes. day I do It's never a hundred percent done. And even if it's been working for a while, at some point, it's very likely to change because somebody, something will necessitate the change. Yep. A new problem will arise you didn't think about that just finally rears its head and you figure it out. New people get hired and they see things differently or do things differently. Like there's a lot of different reasons for it, but they're constantly getting tweaked and changed. But you do have to have somebody in charge of keeping up and making sure, okay, if we're going to change the system, thinking through why, does this really make sense? Does it work? Testing it and then making sure it's documented so that people can find it. (laughs) And communicating that you have changed the system. Like, you know, and so there's a whole process, a whole system on systems on Mm -hmm. how do you update your systems? How often do you want to look at them? But these are the kind of things that keep a lot of people, I think, small. They're hesitant to hire because of their fear of like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to do all that. Or the reverse, people who will hire a bunch and they won't have the systems. And once you get to a certain size without systems, you will start having major problems. Problems. And and I'm not saying like 
that's horrible because obviously that's just how some people roll. They kind of get themselves in the quicksand and then they're like, oh, okay, that's all that system talk. I guess I need to go back and do all those. And, but I mean, at some point you're going to be faced with a need for systems and a need for those systems to be followed. And if you can get to the point where you rely on your system so heavily and they're part of your culture, the systems themselves are part of your culture, it becomes more even and it becomes easier to manage. Like mm. one of the systems we put in last year that, I mean, it's again, a work in progress. I mean, even its name is a work in progress. We called them our minimum standards of care because we were seeing certain client care issues falling through the cracks in different legal teams. And so, you know, we were having conversations as leaders and we were like, well, that should kind of be a standard thing that we do. So we created minimum standards of care. And as we roll those out and deal with them and we get everybody on board with everybody's doing all the minimum standards of care, we're going to now ramp those up and they're mm -hmm. going to become, you know, even higher standards of care. And I mean, that's just a constant evolving process. Okay. So here's what I think I'm hearing. The easiest way to go about this is when you get started and you make your first hire to start utilizing and implementing systems from the very beginning because it will simplify everything and yep. you will create a psychology around systematizing from the very beginning. And then as you bring in new people, they're on board with it from the beginning because you've always had that and you continue to create them as you hire new people for new roles because you're expanding, you have more systems you need to put into place. I think a lot of people hear this conversation and think, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. But what I would say is it doesn't have to be. We're getting into like the, you know, when you have a bunch of people and you have all these millions of systems, well, when you first get started, you only need a couple, right? Yeah. And then you just, every time, I would encourage, and I do encourage my clients to think this way is, just ask the question often, could this be systematized? What would the system be for this? Like just yourself, right? And then you ask the question of someone else who's involved in it. Because you may not know exactly what the system would be, but you can see your mind automatically goes, oh, well, there's kind of a structure to it, it seems. So why hasn't that been systematized? And then you just reach out to the people who would be involved in it and they can get started on it. It is that simple. And delegating it to the person doing the task. I mean, yes. at the beginning of your firm, when you're hiring people very early on, that is the easiest and best time for people to be developing systems because anything anybody does more than once is systematizable. Like if you are going to have to do a task more than one time, it should be written down in a system. And just empowering every person, like that should be in every job description. Every job description for every human you hire should say creating firm standard operating procedures so that it is a constant part of your culture that when a person is doing a task, they are creating systems around that task. And you will find it is so easy to create systems if you take it in these tiny little bite-sized yeah. chunks and it'll just evolve with you over time. And it becomes more natural when that's how you've always done it. And that's how everybody who's brought on has been 
has seen it, right? So that it's just, it's part of what everybody does. So this is what we do. And it, it becomes a part of the culture, I think. It definitely does. It definitely does. So, okay. So obviously when you're thinking of getting started, you're, you're growing your firm, you're in, you're hiring people. Systems are really important. What else do attorneys need to be thinking about as they start to make their first hire or two and start to grow? Well, I mean, I think to your point very initially was the financial sustainability and good financial metrics. And Uh so in my mind, and I'm a huge, huge fan of profit first and, um, you know, the whole system of kind of turning profit on and turning accounting really on its ear, instead of looking at revenue minus expenses equals profit, look at revenue minus profit equals expenses. And so that keeps you in line so that your percentages are going to always be right. Now, that being said, when you're starting a business, many, many people put much of their profits back into the business to grow the business. I mean, it is a a major fuel for business growth is taking that profit and being able to hire more people and do things. So having a financial strategy partner, I would say, is a really important hire early on. Like, you know, initially it could just be like a bookkeeper, somebody who's, you know, helping you manage your books. But if you are not like strategically minded from a financial standpoint, you're going to want to at least pick a CFO's brain every so often if you're not going to like bring one on in a more regular basis. But I mean, you can look to certain people and there's some books out there. I mean, one Uh Brooke Lively has written and she has a business um, called Cathedral Capital. And she's written a book called From Panic to Profit that is excellent. I mean, excellent. And there are tools in there that you can use as you're developing your firm and making some of these decisions about what you can pay somebody. Because every time you're figuring out you're a hire, you need to figure out the ROI, the return on investment for that hire. And you need to figure out the capacity of that person so that you know you're getting maximum labor efficiency from that person and that you're getting a return on your investment. And that then helps you determine, you know, all the next steps in your hire. And so, I mean, really understanding your finances and understanding those building blocks. I mean, I worked with a coach years ago and she would call it a roadmap to growth. And it was such a helpful, just like we mapped out quarter by quarter by quarter. And it was literally like, okay, Elise, this is your next hire. You know, this is what you need to do to bring in the revenue you need to do this. And we would literally just map it out quarter by quarter. And and it all kind of comes together because if you understand your finances and what you need, then you can make that happen from a marketing standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, so you think of like in the way I think of it, I mean, business includes like all that marketing. There's marketing, intake, and sales. There's that operations where we like talk about the systems and the people and there's, you know, the finances and all this like has to work together, you know, but it's so, it's so simple, but people complicate it. Like if you say, (laughs) I want to bring home $300,000 a year, 
then you need to reverse engineer, like, what do you need to bring home $300,000? So how many cases does that mean you need? So you need to know like the average case value of your cases. And you can figure out like exactly what you need to do that. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of hiring really early in that they they are not financially ready to hire. And that is probably the hardest thing is one, accepting how many hats you wear at the beginning, right? You know, till you get to that point where you can start the hiring. But then once you start the hiring, you have to be willing to jettison those hats. And that's when you've got to get serious about what you're good at, what you're not good at. Don't be a micromanager, you know, empower right. your people. There's so much that has come from this. So a couple things. Number one, I think people might hear this and it freaks them out. Oh my God, what do you mean? I have to understand like what the return on investment is in any individual hire. How would I really know that? How would I like, call, like chill out? Like really what we're saying is. Number one, understand your business. You need to get a really good, like get, as, as Lisa said, if you're a litigator, get in there and figure out what does a case usually bring in? What do I like? And, and as she said, you want to reverse engineer it. So you have your, okay, I want to make this much by the end of year one. Well, okay, what does that mean for quarter one? What does that mean for quarter two? What does that mean for quarter three? Like, re and then reverse engineer, okay, what does that mean on month to month basis? What does that mean? You know, so then what does it mean from a number? How many clients do I need? How many cases? How many? It depends on the practice, but you can then go in and say, this is what I need. And you market and sell to that. Okay. And I will tell you, a lot of lawyers get afraid to put pen to paper and put these numbers down because the whole mindset is, but what if I don't meet it? Okay. So what if you don't, you can't do anything about it. If you don't have a goal you're working towards and then right. actually work towards it. You're not likely to do all the things you need to do to go after that if you don't put put it pen to paper. And in my experience, what I see is once you're willing to put those numbers down, you actually have something to work towards. It's easier than to figure out what strategies you want to use. Then you start utilizing them. All you need is consistency for a little bit. And you can see what does and what doesn't work. And you double down on what works. So it's not as hard as you think to bring the work in once you do that, but it's really hard to even get started if you don't do that. So that's number one. Yep. The other thing I would say is this idea that we can't be business people, that we're not numbers folks. I, I like I I would argue with that. You're a smart person, you can figure it out. It's it's not like the hardest thing in the universe. And I'm not saying you have to be a CPA. I'm not saying you have to be a financial analyst. I'm saying just understanding basic business and accounting principles, very basic ones. And I like your, um, the profit first method. I don't do it exactly, but I know what it is. And I kind of think in those terms, I think it's a lot easier for lawyers than looking at traditional gap because you don't really need to do that <laughs> if you don't want to. It's more intuitive, right? And it, and it works. And so I'll put a link to that book. And then I'll also put a link to the other book that you mentioned, the, um, what is it? The From Panic, Panic to, profit. to Profit. Yeah, such a good one. And I don't think I've read that one. So I might have to go out and read it as well. 
But so, you know, these are just a couple things. And I will even say, like, I have a client as an example that I'm working with right now who's in my mastermind. And it's not the one you talk to. It's a different one. Who is also, she's a very small farm. They're trying to grow. And we started with the easiest, lowest hanging fruit because it made the most sense, right? Well, she's done that from a marketing perspective. And that's starting to bring in work. Problem is, those cases are contingency. Mm -hmm. And now she's moving into the harder stuff, the stuff that will take a little longer for her to bring in. However, it's more lucrative. It's what she ultimately really wants to do. And it's where she's going to be spending most of her time for the next, you know, probably ever, but really doubling down the rest of this year. And moving forward, it'll probably be 75% of her marketing time will be spent on that. What's amazing is she kept like, but I don't know what our numbers are. I don't know when we can hire somebody. I don't know, you know, like all these, like, I don't know how to figure this out. And then once we got very specific, okay, wait, what's a typical case? How much do you bring in? And how, and, and she got very clear about, oh my God, I only need like two of these. And then I can make my first hire. Exactly. And I can bring in two of those in the next six months. And so then she, we were able, again, to kind of reverse engineer once I got her out of the thinking too big land and getting like really specific in the numbers. What's a per case basis? How much do you make? How long does that last? How much help do you need? Once you bring this in and you get help on X, Y, and Z things, then where can you focus your attention to bring in more cases? How many more cases could you get? You know, and it, it got very clear to her what she's working towards. <laughs> it, I mean, having a vision of what is the goal is critical to your success. Yes. And interestingly, when you talk about that kind of spiral mind that I don't know, I don't know, I don't know routine, uh-huh. I cannot say enough good things about, um, there's a book called Relentless Solution Focus written by Dr. James Selk, I think, S-E-L-K. It is game-changing and it is the most, I mean, obviously I am like, you know, summarizing it in two sentences, but I mean, the gist of what, if you could get this out of the book is anytime you're spiraling and you're in a stress situation and you're anxious and you're ruminating all those things, ask yourself, what is one action I can take in this moment to move myself forward? Mm-hmm. Because immediately, again, it's our brains. You are switching your brain from that spiral to, oh, okay, I got to answer this question. Once you answer that question, take that action, ask the question again, and you will find yourself four or five questions later of doing that little thing. You're completely on your road to solving your problem. And the overwhelm is gone because you're way past that. You can't be overwhelmed when you're solving. Like it is impossible from a neuroscience thing. Yep. And so, I mean, I when I listen to people and I hear about that whole anxiety and rumination thing, I'm like, oh, I wish they knew this. Because I, I mean, it, it barely ever happens to me anymore. I used to be so like, I could get really wrapped around the axle about something. And now I'm just like, what can I do right here, right now and move this problem forward? This is how coaching helps people, by the way. Because it forces you to get out of your own head, to spit this stuff out, not allow it to spin inside of your mind, hear that you're not the only one, and then it forces you to actually ask one of those next questions so you can get moving forward. And it does flip the switch. Your brain does two things really, really well, and they don't do them at this, it doesn't do them at the same time. 
the natural instinct is the worst case thing, is that spinning, ruminating, because that negative self-talk just takes over. But you can learn how to control that. And the best way to control that is to stop it, to flip that switch, asking really good questions in that moment. And when I say good questions, they have to be the right kind of questions. They can't be these big, solve, huge problems. Like, what can you do right now? Like, what do you actually have control over? And what's that first step? Doesn't have to be a huge one, just that first step to get you moving. And it gets you into problem-solving mode, which we lawyers are really good at, by the way. So if you learn how to do that for your clients, which you have, this is what I find interesting. Everything can hit the fan. Things can be don't going completely south. And we're able to do that for our clients and to start problem-solving and moving forward. But when it comes to ourselves and our own business, we often forget how to do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, and I think that is often because when you start your own business, you're pretty vulnerable. You know, you're mm-hmm. out there, you're having to put yourself out there from a marketing standpoint and doing things and you're maybe being involved in def- different lawyer groups and you're having to like ask questions and, you know, find out, I mean, all the things. I mean, I have like absolutely mastered the dumb blonde question. I mean, I'm like <laughs> comfortable asking, I'm like, I don't know what this is or I don't. and people are so willing to share and help you and like tell you. I mean, I think of all the lawyer groups that I've been involved in and currently am involved in. And I mean, you know, obviously it's evolved over time where often now I not only get to ask all my questions, which still continue. I have millions of questions. I just learned the other day about a kind of insurance I never heard of. I'm like, mm-hmm. how is it that I can run this business and no insurance person has talked to me about this? I was like, y'all have missed out on some money over the years. <laughs> but then I had to go back to my people and I was like, do y'all know about this? And I mean, it was you know kind of split. Half of the people were like, yeah, I knew about this. Other half were like, no, never heard of it. I was like, well, check this out. And so, but you know, you're constantly learning. learning. And I think that being open to that learning and I, you know how we lawyers are, we kind of have been trained to pretend like we know it all. And yeah. I think we can let go of that and like actually go back to our curious childhoods where we are just like eager to learn. We're open to learning. We're open to new technology. I mean, the law is absurd in its We get set in these ways and then we're like, well, I'm not going to use chat GPT or I'm not going to use this technology. And I'm like, well, we're going to watch you go obsolete. You've got to kind of throw off that lawyer. I know everything and realize, I mean, you know, this much of, you know, all this possibility. There's so much to learn. I didn't have any business acumen. I mean, 10 years ago. And you learned it. And I've learned it. It's been effort. I do not mean to diminish, you know, the effort that has gone into learning for sure. But I'm open to learn. Yeah, I think the moral of this story is if you want to start your own firm, you absolutely can. There is nothing that will stop you other than you. Yep. And the really the fundamental thing is accept your vulnerability, accept your imperfect, accept you don't know it all. I would actually argue that that typical 
mindset that most lawyers take on of I'm supposed to know all the answers is not true. Nobody else, including your your clients, actually expect that of you. I don't know where that started and why we did it, but we've, we've got to get away from it because the best lawyers I've ever met in my mind have not had that mentality and have admitted they don't know and will go figure it out or help find the right people to figure it out. They do a much better job for their clients and their clients appreciate it, FYI. <laughs> so I mean, it's yeah. absurd to think we can, we know it all. Like it is just, it it's is. a joke. It is. And, and I think that, I mean, to me though, that is one of your biggest strengths as a business owner is not at all thinking you know it all or you should know it all. I literally am, I mean, the queen of, well, I don't know, but I'm going to find somebody who knows. And yes. I mean, developing a robust network of people where you can be like, I need an insurance person who's going to treat me like, obviously, I'm in third grade because I don't need to go like reinvent the wheel. There is gold in your network. Yes, absolutely. And I, look, the most impactful leaders the most successful entrepreneurs and business people all understand one main thing. They are imperfect. They accept their weaknesses. They know what they are. They accept them and they ensure that they get the help they need to support them so that it can take care of those areas where they're weak, which enables them to be more impactful because they're able to utilize their skills, their strengths to the best of their ability because they're not focusing on all that other stuff. But it requires the right mentality, the right mindset to like accepting that's who you are, being very open about it. It's, I mean, to me, your vulnerability is your, your biggest strength. Yes. Like I not only accept my weaknesses, I embrace them fully. I mean, there's a really good book on this. Don't do stuff you suck at. And I mean, I took <laughs> that book to heart. Like I was like, well, let's just get that list out there of all the stuff I do not do well. And let's get that off my plate because why would I spend my time doing things I don't do well? Right. Now, let's be fair. When you're first getting started, you might have to do some stuff you do suck at because yeah. you don't have the money yet. But the goal is to identify those things and offload them as quickly as you possibly can, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's a real exercise. I mean, you know, there's a book called Traction written by this guy, Gino Wickman. I've read that. And there's an exercise called Delegate and Elevate. And I mean, I do this exercise monthly. I mean, I am still doing this monthly. And it's a four quadrant thing. And I mean, you want to get to the point where you're in that top right quadrant doing what you love and you are great at. Then the left is like stuff you like and you're good at. And then I forget the, all the things, but you know, there's the stuff you are bad at down here and, you know, stuff you're really bad at. And you literally just go around doing this exercise and getting the things off those three quadrants that you should not be doing. And every single month you will find something that you should not be doing. And I mean, either it can be automated, you know, maybe you're not hiring, maybe you're automating something, uh -huh. maybe you're hiring a contract person, you know, you don't need to hire all employees you can hire contract people to help you. But I mean, every single time, like I started with that bottom right quadrant, I'm like, obviously these really things over here must come off my plate, you right. know? And I went around till I got up to the top. And I mean, now I'm mostly in that top two areas, you know, I mean, the stuff I'm really bad at, I mean, I just don't touch. Right. 
So, okay. So before I let you go, what couple of tips would you get somebody just getting started? They're just starting to think about growing. They know they need to start getting help somewhere. They don't have a ton of money because you're not making enough money yet. What are a couple of tactical or practical things or strategies that you would recommend they do? I mean, one would be to get connected with other law firm owners in, you know, other entrepreneurs. You would gain so much value from that, you know, just like practical knowledge. And then you'll just develop those relationships and you'll develop a network of other people and you'll you will start aligning with, you know, if you're a litigator, if you're an immigration attorney, or if you're a, you know, contingency fee PI attorney, like you'll Mm -hmm. start then finding the people in your space. So whatever it is, have a support network of people who are going through similar things and or have been through it that can help. Who are ahead of you, who are ahead of you on this, in this game. I mean, you want to find some people who are probably five to eight years ahead of you because that is where you're going to, a lot of your growth and learning will come from those people. And this is also where it doesn't always have to be like things you spend a lot of money on or even any money on, but, you know, those are out there and those are really great options, but mentoring and like you can seek out people and you probably know people and make sure you're reaching out to them and talking to them because they often will share with you and give you advice when needed. So uh, don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions. Absolutely. And many groups are free. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I mean, the maximum lawyer group is a free group. Um, Lots of groups are free and offer a lot of resources. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's number one. What else? Anything else? Mindset. I mean, I would say getting a coach, you know, if, if you have mindset issues, like if you find you take offense at things or you get upset or you're a ruminator or you're somebody who kind of is a half glass full all the time, you know, like if you're who I call like, you know, the Eeyores of the world, like you're, it's always like, woe is me or, you know, life is whatever, you're going to want to get a coach because those types of mindset things are going to trip you up. Yeah, they are. They just will. It is everything, I think, to your success. And so getting control of your mind is very, very important. All right. Thank you so much, Elise. This was a wonderful conversation that is going to help a lot of attorneys out there who are thinking of going out on their own. And I appreciate so much that you were able to come back on and share all this knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I will get you some of those book titles so you can just link things in your show notes. Perfect. I will definitely include them. Thank you so much. Are you tired of barely squeezing life in thinking, shouldn't there be more to life than this? Do you want to get to the next level, but without losing yourself in the process? Are you ready to start thinking and doing differently so that you can stop doing the same things over and over and over, hoping for a different result? If any of this speaks to you and you're ready to do something about it starting now, book a call with me to find out how I can help. Go to lifeandlawpodcast.com forward slash free call.